You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, good evening, guys. How you doing? Hey, open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 with me, please. <clears throat> we are going to dive back into our study that we've been in for a while. I think we've been in it for well over a year, been taking a nice slow cooking process as we study our way through this letter that Luke wrote, help us get to know who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And uh, I'm excited to dive into it with you guys this evening. <clears throat> be Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Follow along with me. <clears throat> Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. If you guys would bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray before I begin to preach. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the, the freedom and the opportunity that we have to gather here this evening in this space and this place and to, and to bring attention to your name through the, the singing of songs as we worship you. And then to hear from the, the reading of your word and to share stories together of the way that you're doing work in our lives and in our church and in our city and in our community. Lord, it's just a great testimony to the fact that you are alive and you are moving and your spirit is continuing to do deep work of transformation in people's hearts. And so, God, we are so grateful to you and thankful to you for that and thankful to you for this moment in time where we get to sit with the scriptures open in front of us and hear the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, it's such a privilege and an honor to be here. And to do that, and so we ask, Lord, that you would just come and that you would just, by the power of your spirit, be present among us and that you would just actually preach, that you would actually speak and that our hearts would be open to hear from you. Lord, I realize the theme of this text is really just all about the fact that you are coming back someday. Kind of like a parent who's coming home after leaving the kids at home all day in the house. And you've left us with some instructions, Lord Jesus, and I know that this week as I struggled my way through this text, I just admit that, that this certain area of Scripture gave me fits. It gave me fits because I know that my heart has not been focused on you. It's not been focused on your return. And so, Lord, I just really ask and I just really pray and just really beg of you, Lord, that you would center and focus our attention upon you, that, that we might somehow catch a glimpse of heaven, catch a glimpse of what it looks like for the bridegroom to return home to pick up the bride and take us home for a wedding feast that will last for eternity. So, God, I just pray that you would just come and be in our midst. I pray, God, that you would remove me from these moments and just make this about you. Lord, I just pray that and trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. 
So, hey, uh, um, Warren Wearsby, in his uh, commentary on this text, um, made this comment. He said, hey, when, when you are living in the future tense, it is difficult for the things of the world to ensnare you. In other words, the best remedy for not getting distracted by physical, earthly, or worldly desires is to keep our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our lives focused on the return of Christ. And the reality of this text, kind of the big idea is this, that I think what Jesus is trying to drive home for us, and I hope it's the one thing that continues to kind of uh, drive its way through like a theme as I preach this evening, is this, that we must be disciples who are ready for Christ's return. I begin to ask questions like, what does that look like to be ready for Christ's return? Not quite sure if I'm really ready for Jesus to come back yet. Yet there are times when I'm like, man, would Jesus just come back now and rapture us all out of here, depending upon where you fall theologically on the whole rapture conversation? Probably really doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying in this text is that we must live as though we are ready for Jesus to come back. And I remember times when I was younger, like this references in my prayer too, and I'm sure many of you guys have probably been in the same situation as you were kids, or maybe now if your parents, you have a bunch of kids. You know, it's like when your parents left you at home when you were younger, they were going to go to the grocery store, they're going to go out for a date. Before mom and dad leave, they always give us a bunch of instructions like, hey, stay out of the sugar, stay out of the food, don't make Kool-Aid. Don't, don't beat up on your sister. Make sure the house stays clean. Don't answer the door if somebody knocks. Don't answer the phone. Only calls if it's an absolute emergency, like if the house is burning down. Like we'll leave them this big long list of instructions and then just hope and pray that they might get a passing grade, like actually listen to at least 70% of those instructions, right? And I remember me as a kid, my mom would leave sometimes. She'd be gone for the entire day because she'd have a ton of running around to do. And the cool thing about our house for my sister and I when we grew up in this little old white farmhouse, the highest hill in the area, out by a little town called Walton, not too far from Lincoln, Nebraska. We're about uh, seven miles outside of Lincoln, about a mile and a half, mile and three quarters from the nearest town, but it was a high hill. So the cool thing about living in this farmhouse is that you could get up on the second story of the farmhouse and you could be looking out that window to see if mom's car was coming from a mile and three quarters away because you could see her coming through that little town of Walton. So you can imagine, you can imagine all the kinds of stuff that my sister and I would get into when my mom was gone. For instance, we didn't have much for a TV growing up because we were pretty poor. Typically, we wore duct tape on our shoes. That was how we kept our shoes together. When we went to McDonald's, we would eat a cheeseburger that my sister and I would split in half and half a shake at the same time. And so being as poor as we were growing up, one of the things that we did not have is a big color, color TV or cable. We did have one of those old VHS VCRs, which for you young kids probably don't have a clue what that is because you're used to CDs or digital stuff. And so we did have a VHS uh, videotape player, and we had this little black and white TV. It actually had knobs on it, and it actually had a button that you had to push to turn it on and off. And it had these antennas on the back that the only way you could get any channels, and I mean, we did live on top of a high hill, but we didn't have a satellite dish, didn't have cable. Um, we didn't have one of those big antennas you could put on top of your house either. We had these little rabbit ear antennas, which again, something that's pretty much outdated today, but on top of those rabbit ear antennas was coiled up a whole bunch of aluminum foil. You guys know right where I'm going, right? And one of the things my mom, we didn't have a remote either, so you had to physically get up off the couch to go and turn that TV on and off, and you had to turn the channel. And if you're trying to watch like Fox, you had to turn this little channel called the UHF channel, which really drove people crazy, just to get all the tune in and come in right. Moral of the story is this. (laughs) It took a heck of a lot to just watch TV. And one of the things that my mom would always say is, do not turn that stupid TV on while I'm gone because I don't want you rotting your brain. What do you think my sister and I always did? We turned that TV on every time she left. We'd get upstairs the second, house, second story of the house. We'd be looking out my bedroom window, and we would see her car pass through Walton. We'd be rushing back downstairs, and we'd be turning that TV on. We'd be watching all sorts of, like, soap operas. Couldn't watch soap operas. We'd watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was a sin for sure. <clears throat> We watched all sorts of things that we weren't supposed to watch on TV. And what we'd do is we'd set up this, uh, this way that we would always go running upstairs uh, every 15 minutes or so. And uh, so we kind of set up, my sister would go one time, then she'd come back, and then she'd go. We'd always be looking on the lookout, right? On the lookout for Mama to be coming back for Mama Bear. I'll never forget this one time, she likes, she, instead of coming back through Walton, I mean, she's smart, right? She came around the other side. 
and came back this way. I'm sitting up there looking out that window, and there's my mom come rolling in the driveway. And she'd come up from the other side of the house. She'd come around the, the, west, the east side instead of the west side. It's kind of one of those moments where we just kind of got caught red-handed, not ready for her to return. And I imagine we've all probably had those moments in different ways. And when Jesus preaches this text, when he communicates this text to the crowds that are around him, this is really the general theme that he's trying to drive home is, hey, I'm going to be leaving pretty soon. Like I've set my face towards Jerusalem and what waits in front of me is a cross and torture and a horrible death. And at some point I'm going to go to heaven and then I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I want you guys to be ready. That's what he's saying. He wants us to be ready. And then he gives us some instructions on what it means to be ready. But the problem for us is that we struggle with this whole concept. We struggle with understanding and remembering and believing that Jesus is actually going to return someday. We struggle with being ready for Christ's return. We struggle with the whole waiting and the watching diligently. We struggle with managing the things that God has given us here on this earth. We struggle with managing those things faithfully and wisely. We struggle with doing what's right on a daily basis. We struggle to follow the instructions that God has given us, which is why I think this text today is so important for us because we're going to learn three very basic biblical truths that I hope will help us to be ready for Jesus and to keep our eyes on the fact that he is coming back someday. And the reality is this is not our home. We are like aliens on this earth. What we see in front of us, the stresses and the struggles and the anxieties and the wishes and the cares and the desires that we have today in this place, in this time, as we live here on earth, these things do not necessarily represent eternity And if there's a big picture that we can gain from this is that there is an eternal picture of Jesus. And that picture is that he wants us to be with him. And when he comes back, he is coming back like a bridegroom for his bride. Some of you in this room are preparing for marriage. Some of you just got married and you understand. Some of you have been married for a long time and you're still trying to remember that being married is exciting. It's an exciting thing to think about Jesus coming back for us where we can leave this place and wind up in an eternal place with him with no more suffering, no more struggling, no more sin, no more temptation, no more hurt, no more heartache, no more tears, no more pain. We can go to a place of eternity with him. But following Jesus is not all about a get out of hell and get into heaven card either. It's really about making right a relationship that from the beginning was meant to glorify, bring honor and glory to God rather than ourselves. And that's why this instruction this evening is going to be so important. And the first biblical truth we're going to look at is going to be out of verses 35 through 40. And I think what we learn here is this, that we we must wait and watch diligently for Christ's return. And this is something I struggle with. I struggle with waiting and watching. I'm kind of an action guy. I want to get things done. I want to get there. I'm really goal-oriented. You guys probably hear me confessing this like every week. I get my eyes on the prize and I get out there and I want to get things done. It's difficult for me to be uh, like ready every moment of every day for the return of Christ by waiting and watching diligently. It just seems strange. It seems counterproductive to my personality and I, I would guess it could be somewhat same for you. But I want to kind of tease this out just a little bit more and just say that some of the things that I really struggle with when it comes to waiting and watching for the return of Christ is just accepting the righteousness of Christ over my life. Sometimes I slip into working to make myself look better for others. Anybody else ever been there? You're going to be there tomorrow maybe? And if I'm the only one, that's okay. Sometimes I struggle with sin too. Anybody here struggle with sin? I struggle with sin sometimes. So what happens is like the lamp of my life, which is supposed to be filled by the power and the glow of the Holy Spirit, sometimes burns dimly as I grieve the Holy Spirit because of my tendency towards sin. I struggle to hear the voice of the Spirit of God as he knocks on the door of my heart to bring about conviction and confession and repentance. I struggle to surrender to Christ who desires to serve me through his word. So I, so what happens is I wind up sometimes serving myself by feeding my own selfish and sinful appetites. <clears throat> I struggle with believing that God really wants to bless me 
And so I seek blessing or comfort in places and in ways that God really doesn't approve of. I struggle with the unexpected, right? Anybody else struggle with the unexpected, the fear of the unknown, the whole what ifs? I see a couple hands. Thank you. All the what ifs, Ryan, you and I were talking about this recently. Like this is the what ifs, like what's going to happen if I do X? I struggle with the unexpected because I want to know everything. I want to be in control of everything. I want to have everything all mapped out point by point. All these things, like all these confessions for me to you guys really are just kind of like indicators in my life of my struggle with waiting and watching in readiness for the return of Christ. We all struggle in these areas, right? And what's the text say, though? Our struggle in this area. Jesus teaches us this in, in verses 35 through 36, that, that we wait and we watch for Christ's return by staying dressed for action. And keeping our lamps burning. Because Jesus will return like a master who comes home from the wedding feast late at night. It's important for us to be waiting and watching for Christ's return so that we can open the door, right? So that we can open the door immediately when Jesus comes and knocks. And there's a passage of scripture which speaks of Jesus coming and knocking on the door. Will we answer the door when he knocks? Will we be ready for him? Are we living in in a life of readiness and watchfulness in diligence so that as he knocks on the door of our hearts day by day and moment by moment, we are ready to answer that door so that he might come in and dine with us. And if we are ready for Christ's return, then we will be waiting and watching diligently like people who are fully clothed inside a fully lit home, ready to welcome the homeowner in. And the reality is that the people who are given the responsibility to manage the house while their master is gone are given that responsibility so that they can serve the master when he returns, right? When you think about this, if you're a servant of someone who owns a home and you're like house-sitting, then the reality is that you're there to serve the owner of the home. But Jesus kind of takes this principle of management and servanthood and he turns it upside down in verses 37 through 38. Look at 37 through 38 with me. He says that blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes because the master will dress himself for service and have his servants recline at table and will come and serve them. See, regardless of whether it's in the second watch or in the third watch, what Jesus is looking for, regardless of the time of day, regardless of the, of the season that you're in, what Jesus is looking for is servants who are awake and ready to be blessed, not servants who are like cowering in fear inside the house. It's servants who are ready to be blessed by the presence of God himself. Jesus continues this in verses 39 through 40 by saying this. He says, know this, right? Anytime Jesus says, know this, it's a good time for us to pay attention. He says, know this. It's another way of saying, think about this. Like, open your minds to this. Focus on this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Know this. What Jesus is doing here is just getting ready to tell this illustrative story to further underscore this this point that he has, that we should be ready for his return by waiting and watching diligently. What he does here is he uses this transitional statement. Know this. Think about this. Listen to this. Focus on this. Pay attention. Right? He says that the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left this house to be broken into. This teaches us that that we also must be ready for, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that we do not expect. One of the things that drives me absolutely bad is some of the Christian channels on TV. I mean, I'm not trying to talk bad about other Christian brothers and sisters. But one of the things that drives me absolutely bad is some of the Christian channels on TV where you got the guy with like the newspaper open and he's like, oh yeah, newspaper prophecy. These are the signs of the times. The Bible says this and he's like cut and paste and copy like this passage in the Old Testament tied with this passage in the New Testament tied with a little bit of linguine over here. Oh, chop all up, put in a little bit of soup means that this is what's going to happen. Drives me batty. Because the reality is Jesus is telling us that we really don't have a stinking clue when the time is that Jesus 
is coming back. He will come at a time that we do not expect. In other words, if we are to be ready for the return of Christ, then we must be in a place that we are waiting and watching diligently like people who expect the unexpected. How does the gospel connect to this biblical truth for us? We've learned that if we are ready for Christ's return, like we will be waiting and watching diligently like people who are fully clothed, not people who run around half naked, right? I'm thankful we don't do that. Especially in somebody else's house. That would be strange. We should be ready to welcome the homeowner, which is Christ himself, right? We've been learning that we should be like servants who are awake and looking forward to being served and blessed by their master. Like people who expect the unexpected. How does the gospel connect to these biblical truths, though? If you're tracking with me, the gospel message is this. The gospel message is simply this message that says we have been separated from our Father in heaven who loves us dearly because of our sinfulness, because of our unreadiness, because of our selfishness. We've been separated from our Father because of that, because he is holy and just, and we are not. So there is this separating divider between us and him, and it's a thing called sin, which we cannot seem to get away from. But by God's grace and through our faith in the work of Christ, his work at the cross, we can be forgiven and reunited with him for all of eternity. So the gospel is what keeps us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what what I think some of the deeper implications of what's taking place in this text is that as Christians, if you're here and you're a Christian and you believe in Christ, then what I think Jesus might teach us is that we need to be clothed in the gospel, the righteousness that Christ gives us by the power of the cross. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. It's actually that he takes our unrighteousness, which is basically a big word for our filthiness. God takes our filthiness and he puts it in his own bank account. And then out of his bank account, he gives us his cleanliness. We're now clean before him. There's no working that we must do. That then should become a motivator for us to stay watchful and waiting and ready for Christ's return. So that when it happens, we are fully clothed in the gospel. It's just one of the ways that that point ties to the gospel. Another thing that we need to remember is that the gospel is what purifies us completely so that our master Jesus, when he comes, he, he winds up serving our weary souls and he, he brings blessing to our lives on a daily basis. But the gospel is what awakens our hearts to excitedly expect that unexpected moment of Christ's return. Take us home in glory. The gospel is what gives us the ability and the desire even to be ready for Christ's return and to wait and watch diligently. And biblical truth number two that I notice in the text comes out of verses 41 through 44. You might turn there with me. And what we learn from this kind of clump of scriptures is this, that we, we must manage what God has given us faithfully and wisely in light of Christ's return. And this is a big struggle for me as well. I imagine that some of you might identify with this too. Like I struggle with managing what God has given me faithfully and wisely, right? I struggle with managing the time that God has given me. And so I sometimes waste time pursuing goals or accomplishments that don't have any eternal value or that are just way out of my control. I sometimes struggle with managing the talent that God has given me. And so I sometimes pursue endeavors that are like way outside my wheelhouse, way outside my talent area. Which means then that the things that I'm actually wired to do and called to do get my leftover efforts. And I struggle with managing the treasure that God has given me. So sometimes it becomes really uh, difficult for me to invest in the ministry of the gospel. I struggle with managing what God has given me because I fail to stay focused on the fact that Jesus is returning someday. We all struggle with this. And in verse 41, Peter asked Jesus, he says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all of us, right? For us or for all. In other words, Peter is wondering if every disciple needs to heed these words and these instructions regarding Christ's return. Or are these instructions just for a certain group of people? Now, think about this with me for just a minute, right? 
We all face the temptation of dismissing what God's word says because we, we uh, maybe uh, believe that it was meant for a certain select group of people. It wasn't meant for us. It was meant for somebody else. This is possibly what Peter is asking. Hey, is this really for just us or is this for like everybody? I think this is the reason that Jesus answers Peter's question in verse 42 with a question. Love this about Jesus, right? Like, Jesus, can you just give me a straight answer here? Like, it's a yes or no answer. Like, yes, it's for everybody, or yes, it's just for you. But this isn't the way Jesus rolls, right? So Jesus got to answer everything with a question, takes on a little bunny trail, got to see if we can kind of hack in and figure it out. So catch this. He asked this question in response to Peter's question. He says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? In other words, Jesus basically asked this, says, who is the person who will be found faithful and wise in their commitment to managing and caring and serving others in my household? Who is that person? That's the person I'm looking for. It appears as though Jesus really isn't concerned with prescribing his instructions for just a select group of disciples. But in fact, he's actually more concerned with the character of anyone who serves as a disciple in his household. So if you're here and you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is speaking this to you. This is why Jesus describes the person he is directing his instructions to as a faithful and wise manager. In other words, Jesus wants every one of his disciples to be people who manage what God has given us faithfully and wisely in light of his return. And remember that this is kind of the theme of this section of text that Jesus is coming back someday like kids who have been left to take care of everything he's given us. In light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, in light of the fact that these things here on earth will just rot away anyways, we're called to manage those things faithfully and wisely. Jesus continues these instructions, right, on what it looks like to be a disciple who manages what he's given us faithfully and wisely by making two basic statements. In verses 43 and 44, he says this. He says, blessed is that servant who is ready for Christ's return because the master will set him over all his possessions. In other words, Jesus says that we are blessed with more responsibility when we manage the things that God has given us. We manage those things faithfully and wisely with our eyes focused on Christ's return. Principle of faithful and wise stewardship or management or leadership or servanthood isn't just meant for super spiritual Holier-than-thou, elitist clubs, it's meant for anyone who claims the name of Christ. It's meant for anyone who claims the name of Christ and is then looking forward to the fact that Christ is returning someday. And if that's you today, if that's you, if you, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, whether you're at the beginning ages of the spectrum and you're still a baby wearing diapers, or whether you're 52 years into following Jesus and you're still a baby wearing diapers. Doesn't matter. Wherever you're at on this spectrum of following Jesus, if you're here and you've begun to call yourself a follower of Christ, then one of the things that Jesus wants of us is that we would manage what he has given us. The stuff that we have, the time that we have, the talent that we have, the treasure that we have, doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. Like everything belongs to him. The scriptures are really clear that God owns a cattle on the thousand hills he also owns the hills too, which tells me he owns the grass on those hills as well, which is why anytime we face financial hardship, I just begin to ask God, please sell some cows on our behalf and maybe some land too, maybe some flowers at the same time to the local florist. Everything that we look at in front of us does not actually belong to us. It belongs to him. He owns it. God is the owner because it originated from him, which means anything that you and I actually have that doesn't actually belong to us we're just managers of, we're just stewards of those things, which the nice thing about that is I don't have to sit here and like dream so much about the brand new truck that I've always wanted anymore. Like I can let go of that idolatry and I can just trust in the one who actually owns those things and has the power to give me those things if he so chooses. I don't have to live my life in pursuit of, of more things, more treasure, I want to live my life in the pursuit of being 
talented like somebody else's. I can just live in my own skin. So if you believe yourself to be a part of the family of God, then, then Jesus calls you to be working faithfully and wisely to be serving and caring for and managing and feeding and nourishing others in the family of God. And as you do this, you'll be given more responsibilities. Like, great, like work yourself out of a job type of thing, right? Do this well, you get something else. It's a reward type of a system. There are rewards to following Christ. Though following Christ is hard and it's difficult because it means picking up a cross and carrying it, which is actually an instrument of death so that you die to yourself to serve others and serve Christ so that you can be like Christ who picked up his cross so that you could be served through his death. Even though that is the way of following Christ, and it is hard and it is difficult, like there's no easy-peasy gospel message that is actually true. The message of the gospel is hard to hear. It's good news for weary, sin-stricken souls, but it's hard to hear. And yet at the same time, in the midst of that, we also gain reward. We also gain reward as we manage what God has given us faithfully and wisely. We'll be given more responsibility over other things. And the call of God in our lives isn't a call to be sitting back lazily watching everyone or waiting on everyone else to do the work of the gospel. Like the call of God on our lives to be waiting and watching diligently for Christ's return isn't the call to sit back in our armchairs with our personal musings on our personal faith. The call of God on our lives is to be disciples of Jesus. It's not a calling of passivity. It's a calling of activity. You follow me? It's not a calling of passivity, it's a calling of activity, whereby we wait and watch diligently by doing what he's asked us to do. It's a call to pick up our crosses, die to ourselves, our selfish desires. Just as Jesus actively picked up a cross, he actively secured our salvation. He's actively, for those of you who do not know him and are just checking us out this evening, he's actively proclaiming a message in your midst that says, though you are separated from your father in heaven, I actively came and picked up a cross and then actively gave myself to die on it so that by your faith and trust in me, you could be saved, ransomed, and set free from those things which keep you in bondage. The prize is the message of the gospel. It's not a message of inactivity where we just sit in our chairs. It's a message of activity where we get on mission with him. And I want you to think about how these instructions could impact your life. How they, how they impact the way you manage your time. The way that you manage your time, your talent, your treasure, your, your homes, your vehicles, your paychecks, your bank accounts, your relationships, your playtime, your abilities. Man, God has given us so much because he's been so generous. If he owns everything, then, then he, could, he could pour out anything he wanted to you and I. How do you and I manage what he has given us in light of the fact that he is returning at a time when we do not know. God calls each and every one of us to manage what he has given us faithfully and wisely. Number three. Number three in verses 45 through 48. We learn that we must do what is right in light of Christ's return. And I struggle with doing what is right. As much as I hate to admit that, because I'd rather try to keep a facade on that causes you to think that I've got my ducks in a row. I struggle with sins of commission, meaning that I commit sin on a daily basis. Or sometimes I just willingly and actively do what's wrong. Even though I already knew it was wrong, there are times when something happens inside of me and sin gets such a grip on me that, that I, just, I just do things that I'm not supposed to do that I know that I'm not supposed to do. Even though I've received instruction on those things I'm not supposed to do. I struggle with with sins of what we might call omission or passivity. I struggle with not doing the right things that God has actually called me to do and I just sit back and I don't engage that right direction that God has asked me to head in. Regardless of how often I hear instruction on doing what's right, I sometimes do this. I struggle with sins of just flat out ignorance, right? 
just ignorance doing what's wrong in a certain situation, even though I thought ignorantly that it was like the right thing to do. And then later I find out, oh, crap, that was the wrong thing to do. I shouldn't have done that. I just struggle, struggle with sin. Anybody else there with me on that one? I'm not the only one in this room on that either, right? It's good. Let me just tell you that this section of text is what gave me fits all week. First two parts were difficult enough. When you read the harsh words in this text, like I would have rather skipped past it and preached something else. And this is probably part of the issue with, with preaching expositionally, line by line, verse by verse, word by word, is that you don't get to just ignore these things. So on one side, it's a blessing because it's, it's the way we want to see our church discipled and disciplined is to just lean into that. But I just stand in front of you as a preacher who really struggles with these final verses of text. And so let's just dive into it, right? Verses 45 to 48. Jesus uses some really negative and harsh and like almost, and actually not even almost, just flat out disturbing imagery to make his point that, that we must do what is right in light of his return. He does this by painting pictures of the judgment that awaits for those who choose to actively do what's wrong or or people who refuse to do what's right or, or people who are just plain ignorant of what is right or wrong in a certain situation. And in verse 45 to 46, Jesus explains that if we think, like, like if we are the type of people who believe that Jesus is just delayed in coming, like, hey, mom's not going to be home for a couple more hours, so I can just do whatever I want and get away with it. And so then we begin to take advantage of and mistreat people around us, or actually to use Jesus' words exactly, we begin to beat the male and female servants. We begin to misuse and abuse food or alcohol. Or again, to use Jesus' words exactly, we begin to eat and drink and to get drunk. Even though, even though this clearly violates God's clear instructions on how to treat others and how to control our eating and our drinking, then Jesus, the text says, Jesus will come on a day that we do not expect him in an hour that we do not know. And he will cut us in pieces. He will put us with the unfaithful. In other words, when Jesus returns, man, like he's definitely coming to rescue people who do what's right. He's also coming to bring harsh judgment against those who willingly and actively do what's wrong, even though we've been instructed on what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. That's heavy stuff, right? Track with me into verse 47. Uh, Jesus continues. See, and here's my hope. Let me just pause, press pause. Like, I'm hoping that y'all won't just like check out in these moments as I preach through these verses. It's too easy for some of us who, like Jeremy mentioned earlier, like myself too, many of us had really poor fathers as kids. And so when we hear this type of language, we have a tendency to check out and we want to we wanna just kind of bask in the Father's love, right? And we need to do this very important. We're going to get there, but the text doesn't take us there yet. So it's really important for us to kind of lean into this and read it out for what it's worth. Verse 47, Jesus continues and explains that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. This is pretty harsh language. Scares the heck out of me when I read it. I got beat as a kid and I didn't like it. And so if there's any of you in this room that are hearing some of these words and you're cringing, my prayer and my hope in these moments, seriously, is that the Holy Spirit would just rest and hover and brood in this space and this place and that, and that you would be set at ease. That, that, that we would all be kind of maybe confronted with our tendency towards sin, yet at the same time comforted by the fact that we do have a good Father who's given His Son for us because we cannot, we cannot do this, right? Only Jesus could. Back to the text. At the second example from Jesus is slightly different than the first one. Because in the first example, we see this person who, who knows exactly what is wrong, but he decides to do it anyways. And then in the second example, we see this person who knows what's right to do, but that person refuses to do what's right. And what Jesus is teaching us is that we should not be people of sinful activity or sinful inactivity. Like, we should not be characterized as people of sinful activity or sinful inactivity. We should, in fact, be people who are characterized by doing what's right in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to rescue us and to take us home to be with him for all of eternity. In verse 48, Jesus wraps this thing up, right? He wraps this up with his third and final example. 
of someone who does what is wrong. When he says, it says, the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Notice here that there is a definite progression from like the lesser of evils or the worser of evils to the lesser, even if worser is even a word, from the worse of evils to the lesser of evils, right? Jesus began with a person who actively sought to do what was wrong, though he knew it was wrong. He then moves to a person who passively refused to do what was right, though he knew what was right to do. And now Jesus moves into explaining that a person who doesn't know what is necessarily right or wrong in a situation, but winds up falling short of what is expected, will still face judgment, though less severely than the others. What we learn here is that the punishment fits the crime. God is just in his dealings with sinful humanity. He's just in all of his dealings with our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sins. And that's really what we're talking about. Two very big, theolo- three very big theological words that mean an awful lot of different things. Like iniquity is this concept of actually knowing what's wrong and then planning to do what's wrong. Transgression is more of a kind of a, in the moment, had to, I thought maybe that wasn't wrong. I wasn't quite sure. Okay, yeah, that was wrong. I did that. Mistake. That's more, that's more mistake. And then sin at its base level is just failing to meet the mark. It's kind of like, crap, made a mistake again, right? All three of those come together to show us that this is really, this is really, honestly, if you search the scriptures, this is really what we are made of. So when then God sends his son to save us, he's sending his son as a perfect sacrifice and a perfect ransom to do what you and I could not do, to live the perfect life, to do all the right things that you and I will never be able to accomplish ever. That's why it's so good to then trust in Jesus, to bring our sin to the doorstep of heaven and say, and by my faith, in Christ, I'm hopeless and helpless without you, and I need you to save me, Lord Jesus. And now I want to look forward to your return. So what we learn here is that the punishment will fit the crime. God is just in his dealings with our iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he will reward the faithful and bring judgment to the rebellious, to those who reject him. He'll bring judgment to those who receive him. He brings Reward. This is why he finishes these instructions with these final words. Like everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, and we have been given much, we have been entrusted with much, we must be disciples who do what's right in light of Christ's return. So I'm going to wrap this up. I invite... Jeremy and Casey, come on back up and lead us in some music as I kind of wrap my way through the conclusion of this message. <clears throat> now, doing what's right in light of Christ's return means this, means ultimately to believe the message of the gospel, which I have communicated a number of different ways. And to trust in the only one who actually gives us hope so that now what happens is that our doing right in the eyes of God is, is no longer this effort to save ourselves or to win brownie points or get stars on the chart in heaven. But it's actually to return actions of love to the one who loved us dearly since before the foundations of the earth. God made this plan. Before he ever actually thought of anything else he created, he thought of you and I and how he would redeem us through the sending of his son. So that, so that Christ could get it all right, so that all of our sinfulness and our mess and our nastiness, again, could be taken. So that each and every day we can come to him and say, hey, hey God, I'm coming to you again by faith, knowing that I'm a wreck and a mess of a human being. And that there are parts of me that are still in bondage. There, there are pieces of me and there are times throughout every moment of every day where I actively rebel against your word. And I actively rebel against what I know is right. I actively do those things which I know are wrong. 
we can still come to him and say, with, without a mask on, without the face on, without pretending, without trying, we can just come to him and we can say, hey, man, I thought that was the right thing to do. It wasn't the right thing to do. I'm trusting in Christ to cover that and wash it clean. And there's a passage in the Old Testament. It became a psalm by one of my other favorite bands. It says that like when we come to Christ, he, he takes our our sinful hearts that have played the whore and he, he makes us clean again. He takes our garments that have been stained by sin and he washes them clean with his blood. And this is a message of good news knowing that we can wait in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And really what we should be like is we should be like people in the second story of a house waiting for him to come back, not because we're trying to get away with all the sin in our lives, but because we're really overjoyed because, man, our Jesus is coming back, which means that we don't have to suffer in sin anymore, and which means we don't have to live in this shell, in this earth anymore. But then when he comes back, he's coming to take us home to be with him for all of eternity where we get to eat and dine in a perfect place with him. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on this passage, says, We should live prospectively, sensitive to the accountability of discipleship. We should wear our work clothes and keep the lamps burning, looking for the Lord's return by serving Him faithfully. In other words, we should be ready for Christ's return by waiting and watching diligently for His return. We should be ready for Christ's return by, by managing what God has given us faithfully and wisely. And we should be ready for His return by doing what is right. This is the reason we celebrate communion as we connect this to the gospel. Because, because one response to this could be that we just walk away, throw up our hands and say, well, that was a heavy message. Like, I'm a failure. I can't make all that stuff happen. The other thing is we could just embrace that too. We could embrace the fact that we are sinful and broken humans and that we're never going to fix ourselves because broken pots can't fix broken pots. Like, broken people can't fix broken people. Like, I can't fix any of you any more than any of you can fix each other. This is why we need Jesus so badly, because he's perfect. We sang this in our song earlier. He's a good father who gave his perfect son sinless sacrifice. So by our trust in him, we can be moved from the realm of enemies of God to family of God. And we can stay there. That's what communion is about. That's the other response. One response is throw up your hands, walk out, get ticked, get butt hurt, go have another beer, sleep with another chick, do whatever you want. That's fine. You can either do that and continue that way, or we can embrace our sinfulness and our neediness of Jesus because we're never going to get this right, and he did. And if that's you here, whether that was 53 years ago or whether that's today, it doesn't matter. When you receive Christ, when you said that moment, you said, hey, Jesus, I need you. I'm utterly hopeless and helpless without you. Whenever that moment happened for you, that's the moment when you were welcomed into the family of God and angels in heaven went absolutely insane and threw an after Super Bowl party that was the biggest one ever. Every time someone says yes to Jesus, that's what happens in heaven. And then that's the party that's going to send Jesus back for you and I to go to heaven to be with him, which then motivates us to continue living in light of his broken body and his shed blood which is the reason we take communion because it reminds us. It's our active response, our active response of continuing to confess and repent, our need for Jesus to cover our lives and change our lives. We will never manage everything perfectly. We will never stay awake long enough. We will never get away from the gut-wrenching effects of sin in this life far enough on our own. That's why we need Christ. It's why we celebrate communion. It reminds us of our need for him. So as you come here in a moment, there'll be two near the front to serve you. Communion. You don't have to be a member here to take communion here. All you have to be is somebody who is trusted in Christ. And, and listen, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Christ, and even in this preaching, even in this moment, you're still saying, no, I'm resisting that. I'm rejecting that. I don't think I'd call myself a Christ follower. That is okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. Like it's not what I want. But only the Holy Spirit can move you there. 
And if you're not there, like, we're glad you're here. You're here, you're checking us out. Somebody dragged you here. It's the holidays. Whatever the reason is, glad you're here. Don't take communion. The reason is because we don't want you to just, like, take part in some silly tradition that will make you look good. We, We don't want that. We want you to take communion if you place your faith and your trust in Christ and if there really is a celebration meal for you. This is the way we rehearse the gospel together. The way we rehearse it. Some of you hear me say this every week and you go, I wish you'd get past it. I'd, I'd have to just say, man, where's your heart at? Because this should excite you. That There should be some of us who should be running down front and saying, man, not just one piece of bread, but all of it. Not just a little dribble of blood, but, but all of it. Because it's going to take all of Christ's broken body and all of Christ's shed blood to cover the iniquity and the transgression and the sin in my life. There should be some of us who should be bum-rushing the front like a football game because we need Christ so much. When our church rehearses the gospel that way, I can guarantee you that we're living in light of Christ's return because we are excited and motivated by the fact that He is everything for us. So let me pray. Jesus, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the cross of Christ and thank You for the shed blood and Thank you for this church and thank you for all of our unique needs and the way that you come and interact and sit among us. And as we come and respond through the celebration of the Lord's table this evening, God, I pray that you would just be at work in our hearts. Help us to confess sin. Help us to confess our iniquities, our shortcomings, our wrongdoings. Help us to repent of that. But help us to be really open with each other and just to, to really just not, not look to each other to save each other, but to look to you to look to you, to come to the foot of the cross and just say, Christ, I need you. And I just pray that that would be the heart in this church and that, and that the gospel would just be on display for the watching world around us and that you would change many of us in these moments. Lord, we need you. We know you're coming back. We're waiting for that. We're watching diligently. Help us to manage what you've given us faithfully and wisely. Help us to do what's right as we live out our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, thanks for letting me preach. I love you guys a ton. There'll be a couple here to serve communion to you guys, and then there'll be a couple of us near the front to pray with you. If you have needs, if you need to confess sin, if you just need to pray with a brother or a sister, we'll be near the front. front. So please stand with us as we worship. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.